Well, we started a new series last week called God's Not Dead 2. And one of the reasons we started this series is because we felt it was really important as this uh, movie kind of takes place. Um, it's, it's important for us as a church to know what we believe and to uh, be able to communicate it to our friends. Listen, I have friends all the time on Facebook and in person who are skeptics about Christianity, uh, who are agnostics, who are uh, uh, atheists, who are all kinds of things, and um, they challenge me on what I believe. And I think it's important for us uh, to know what we believe, why we believe it, to be able to communicate it to our friends who are skeptics. And then if you're here today and you're a skeptic, if you say, you know, I came with my wife or with my husband or with my kids or to see these kids get uh, dedicated, uh, listen, I want you to <coughs> just open your mind a little bit to the truth uh, that exists. Now, one of the things that I, uh, I, I don't take a lot of pride in my preaching, but one of the things I do take pride in is I, I usually use a lot of scripture uh, in my messages. And I tell people, and I'm honest about this, the reason that I do that is because, frankly, I'm not smart enough to come up with stuff on my own. So I just got to keep quoting the Bible, and, and that really does a good job for me. Uh, today, there's not going to be a lot of scripture like there usually is, and it doesn't mean that we're throwing the scripture out. But one of the things that's more, really important is, as we talk to our skeptical friends, we can't just go back to the Bible and be quoting it all the time. Because my friends who don't believe in God, who don't believe in Jesus, don't believe the Bible's reliable either. And so for me to just be able to quote the Bible is not good enough to talk to my friends. Uh, so we want to look at the evidence today uh, for the Jesus of history. And that's what we're going to talk about. Real uh, faith isn't blind. But first I want to share with you, I got invited to go uh, on an African safari this fall and so I'm going to uh, go into the central part of Africa this fall and go on a, a hunting expedition, actually, uh, to hunt rainbow unicorns. So you be praying for me as I do that. Now, in that, in that statement, I have expressed two different kinds of faith. And I want to I pull these out for you because I want you to see the difference, okay? When I talk about hunting uh, rainbow unicorns, I'm doing that out of a blind faith, there's no evidence. Uh, I mean, you know, my little pony in the, in the toy store. But other than that, there's virtually no evidence for rainbow unicorns, right? Uh, there's no indication that they really exist. There's no testimony from anyone that they've seen one or that they have one or that they've shot one. But I also expressed in that statement that I'm going to get on an airplane and I'm going to fly to Africa. Now, uh, that's a little bit different kind of faith, you see, I've, I've flown before. I've flown to other uh, parts of the world. I've seen planes fly. I've, I've seen pictures. I've seen movies. I've, I've got a lot of information that tells me it's a possibility that this plane will make it. Now, there's no assurance. Every time that I get on a plane, I am exercising faith because I, I, there's no assurance that this plane is going to make it. Reality is, planes fall out of the sky. Some just completely disappear. And so there's no, you know, I'm putting my hands and my, 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 my life in the hands of pilots I've never met, navigators I don't know, uh, 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 air traffic controllers I've never met. So I'm exercising a kind of faith. But I want you to understand that these two faiths are very different. One is an ignorant faith based on something I just decide to make up and choose to believe. Rainbow unicorns exist. That's just a made-up, ignorant faith. But the decision to get on an airplane and fly to the other side of the world is an informed and intelligent faith. 
It's based on the facts. It's based on information. It's intelligent. And I want you to see today, before you leave here, that believing in the resurrected Jesus is not an ignorant and blind faith. It's not the decision in our own minds to make up a Savior so we can believe in him and feel better about ourselves. That's not it. It's an intelligent and it's an informed faith because the evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, as we begin to look at the evidence, what we see is the scales begin to tip. Can I absolutely scientifically, forensically prove that Jesus rose from the dead? The answer is no. And that's where faith comes in. But, but we don't swing the pendulum to the other side and say it's the same as believing in rainbow unicorns because there's no evidence. Of course there's evidence. And as we see the evidence begin to stack up, the scales tilt. And at the end, when you really look at the evidence, folks, there's really no intelligent uh, uh, conclusion to come to other than that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore he's exactly who he said he was. So let's begin to look at some of this stuff, okay? Uh, first, I want you to see uh, this passage in Acts chapter 2. It says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Luke is writing here in the, in the second book of Acts, or second chapter of Acts, he's saying, hey, look, guys, we are witnesses of these things. I'm not making up some story. I saw these things with my own eyes. We witness these things absolutely directly in front of me. And so he's writing this story. I'm going to show you a video clip from the film. And in it, a famous crime detective, and he's an author, uh, J. Warner Wallace, uh, he's featured in this film. He's testifying in this courtroom drama about how he came to faith in Christ because of the evidence for the truth of the Christian message. Now listen, this guy is a real person. Uh, this is his real story. It's being put into the film, so he's not an actor. So he's actually sharing with you his decision and why he decided to follow Christ. Let's look at the film. Just state your name and experience for the record. My name is James Warner Wallace. I'm a retired homicide detective from Los Angeles County. And are you the author of the book, Cold Case Christianity? Yes, I am. Can you share the subtitle of the book with the court, please? A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Would I be correct in saying that your, your duties as a homicide detective include investigating cold case homicides? Yes, that is and was my expertise. Don't most of those cases get solved with DNA evidence? Objection. Leading. And counsel is testifying again, Your Honor. I'll rephrase. How many of your cold cases were solved through the use of DNA evidence? None, not one. That's uh, often popular on TV, but our department's never had the good fortune of solving a cold case with DNA. Well, how do most of these cases get solved? Often by examining eyewitness claims, uh, witness claims that were made many years earlier, even though often our witnesses are now deceased. Forgive my ignorance, Mr. Wallace, but how is that possible? Well, we have a number of techniques that we can use to test the reliability of an eyewitness, including something called forensic statement analysis. That's a discipline where we scrutinize the statements of eyewitnesses and looking at what they choose to minimize, what they choose to emphasize, what they omit altogether, how they expand time or contract time. And when we examine these kinds of eyewitness accounts, we can usually tell who's lying and who's telling the truth and even who the guilty party is. And did you apply this skill set any time outside of your official capacity? 
yes, I applied my expertise to the death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans. And I actually looked at the Gospels as I would any other set of forensic statements. Within a matter of months, I determined that the four Gospels, written from different perspectives, contained the eyewitness accounts about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And did you consider that the four accounts might be part of a conspiracy designed to promote belief in a fledgling faith? Yeah, you have to consider conspiracies when assessing eyewitness account. But successful conspiracies typically involve the fewest number of people. It's a lot easier for two people to lie and keep a secret than it is for 20. And that's really the problem with the conspiracy theories related to the apostles in the first century. There are just far too many of them trying to hold this conspiracy for far too long a period of time. And far worse, they're experiencing pressure like no other, unimaginable pressure. Every one of these folks was tortured and died for what they claimed to see, and none of them ever recanted their story. So the idea that um, this is a conspiracy in the first century is just really unreasonable. Instead, what I see in the Gospels, something I call unintended uh, eyewitness support statement. What's an unintended eyewitness support statement? If I can borrow your Bible. Let me uh, go to the Gospel of uh, Matthew for an example of this. I'll start with a passage in which Jesus is in front of uh, Caiaphas at a hearing. It says here, Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now that seems like a very simple request, given that the people who hit him are standing right in front of him. What, this makes no sense. What, why would it be prophecy to be able to tell you who hit you? But it's not until you read Luke that you get an answer to this. He says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? So now we know why this was a challenge, because Luke tells us the thing that Matthew left out, that he was actually blindfolded at the time this took place. This is very common, this kind of unintentional eyewitness support that fills in a detail that the first witness left out. After years of scrutinizing these Gospels, using the temple that I used to determine if an eyewitness is reliable, I concluded that the four Gospels in this book contain the reliable accounts of the actual words of Jesus. So by applying his, uh, uh, the principles that he solves cold cases with, he, he comes up with the belief that Jesus is real and the, the, the scriptures are true. As an atheist, he began to apply this same investigative process. And, and to, that he used to solve cold cases... And, and given the four Gospels, he came to believe that the New Testament gives reliable eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. As he says, and this is a quote from him, I'm not a Christian because I was raised that way. I'm a Christian because, because it is evidentially true. You see, he came to the conclusion that he wanted to follow Christ, not because he was taught to do it, not because somebody made him do it or it was in, invested in him. He decided to follow Christ because when he looked at the evidence, there was no other conclusion to come to, but that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Listen, real faith is grounded in evidence. God created us with the capacity to reason and call us to love him with all of our hearts and minds. Look what it says in Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Folks, we don't come to God against reason, but through reason. God says, use your brains. He doesn't say, hey, if you want to believe in me, turn your brains off. Don't use your mind and just pick me and follow me. He says, no, worship me even with your head, even with your brain, even with your mind, because you're going to find that I'm true. Fact is, 
We have been given more than enough evidence to know that God exists. The question is this. Are we willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads? That's really the question. You know, when a homicide detective takes on a case, one of the worst things he can possibly do is come to some uh, conclusion prematurely. Because then as he looks at the evidence, he tries to make it fit into this uh, uh, decision that he's already made. The best way to find a killer is to look at all the evidence with an objective view. Let the evidence point you to the guilty party. Don't pick a guilty party and try to make the evidence fit it, but look at the evidence and see where it leads you. And so I ask the same question again. Are we willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads? I hope so. My goal is to demonstrate that real faith isn't blind. It's grounded in evidence. Look what it says in Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Folks, when you look at nature, this passage says that, look, as human beings, we look at nature and go, yeah, God exists. He's out there. Somebody made this. Not only has God given evidence of his existence through what he's made, but he's also given evidence of who he is in history. If you do a quick search on the internet, you'll find numerous skeptical websites that deny Jesus ever lived. Folks, those, those people are, are uh, the, of the, I know it's going to be kind of mean, but they're of the intelligent equivalent of a man who thinks he's a hard-boiled egg. I mean, they're just grabbing something. That, to, to say that Jesus never existed, that is an unintelligent faith. Because they don't look at the evidence, and I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why. The fact that Jesus existed is confirmed by virtually all historians. Whether they are atheist or Christian, conservative, liberal, whatever, the doubts expressed about his existence are not from historians, but from skeptics who hope to dismiss the whole debate by simply asserting that he never lived. That's it. No evidence. There's a man named uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina is arguably the most influential Bible critic of our day. He He frequently debates Christian scholars about the reliability of the New Testament, Uh, from a historical standpoint. Now, while he is a skeptic in terms of the overall truth of the Christian faith, he is not skeptical about the existence of a real man named Jesus. To Ehrman and countless other scholars, such a denial is not founded on the evidence. Ehrman has emphasized that the fact of Jesus being a man of history is incontrovertible. I quote him because he is not a Christian, okay? As more or less a hostile witness against the Christian faith, he finds himself actually helping the cause of Christ by underscoring the truth of his early existence. Once that existence is accepted, it becomes a rather straightforward investigation about the evidence of the undeniable impact of his life. So Ehrman writes this. This is his quote. He says, I am not a Christian. I am not a Christian. And I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I am an agnostic with atheistic leanings, and my life and views of the world would be approximately the same whether or not Jesus existed. But as a historian, I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain Jesus did exist. At the heart of this movie, 
is a storyline of a high school teacher, Grace, who quotes Jesus in her history class in response to a question from a student. She's suspended from her job and she faces a lawsuit because of her actions. Now the question is raised, if Jesus really existed and the Gospels recorded what he said, why can't you quote Jesus like you would any other person in history? Like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or JFK. Why couldn't you do that? Studies have shown that there is a trend of young people leaving the Christian faith once they graduate from high school and go to college. Now, that's a scary trend, folks. At the core of this phenomenon is the fact that many aren't sure whether the Christian story is really true. That's, that's why our focus on this topic is vital. That's why we as, as parents and grandparents need to be able to help our children understand that this message is true. We want to look at the minimal facts regarding the gospel story. Minimal. Okay? We can't do all the evidence today. I've, I've got books this thick that talk about this. We're going to scratch the surface. But these are the facts that even skeptical historians concede are true. Contrary to the charge that we can know very little about the Jesus of history, we have more than enough evidence to conclude that he lived, he died by Roman crucifixion, and he rose from the dead three days after his death. Let's look at some of these accepted facts. The first one is this. Jesus died by crucifixion. You know, the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith, and without question, it's the most recognizable religious symbol in the world. Almost two billion people believe that Jesus' crucifixion had something to do with their sins being absolved by God. Now, they may not understand the true gospel. They may not understand that by faith we can put our, our trust in Jesus and receive Christ as our Savior. But they somehow connect the cross to their salvation. But virtually all of the early church writings are filled with references to Christ being crucified by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. There are also records of this form uh, from history and writers who were not sympathetic to the Christian cause. So it's not just the Bible that says these things. When an enemy or an opponent references an event, historians count that fact as a mark of authenticity. This must be true because even the guys that are against it are agreeing. The most famous is Flavius Josephus. Josephus, sorry. I, I, by the way, thank you for naming your kids right names, good names, okay? I, I, I pity the parents of Flavius Josephus. But he was, a, uh, he was a Jewish historian, and he was employed by the Romans, and he wrote during the time of Christ. This is what he wrote. He wrote, When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. Another source is uh, Tacitus, who is generally regarded as the greatest of the Roman historians. He was the proconsul of Asia from A.D. 112 to 113. His last work, The Annals, was written in A.D. 116 to 117 and included this, quote, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So if you're using the objective standard of judging what is history, the crucifixion of Jesus is a part of the historical bedrock. Folks, anybody who denies that a man named Jesus was crucified are simply denying history. They are the same people that would say George Washington wasn't really the president. They're denying history. Okay? This evidence is, is not disputable. 
The second thing I want you to see today is that his tomb was found empty. All four Gospels specifically mention that the body of Jesus was immediately requested from, from Pontius Pilate by Joseph of Arimathea, and he was placed in a tomb. They all also mention that women were the first eyewitnesses that the tomb was empty. That's important, folks. This fact is significant because the testimony of women was usually dismissed in ancient times. It's highly unlikely that any first century authors would have made that story up. They just wouldn't have done that because it had less credence to them than if men saw the empty tomb. Look at the early creed that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, if he was buried, then the tomb would have been a geographical as well as a historical marker. All that the Roman and Jewish authorities would have had to do was produce the dead body of Jesus. That's it. And the Christian story would have come to a screeching halt. Folks, Christianity is different than every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is based on a set of uh, principles and philosophies. Christianity is based on a historical event, a single historical event. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, Christianity collapses on itself. I mean, I mean it, it just falls. Christianity is not the following of Jesus' teachings only. It's not the following of Jesus' ways. It's the belief and the trust that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and he rose from the dead. All the Romans had to do was say, oh, you guys are lying. He's right there. Done. Over. Christianity's gone. But if he did raise from the dead, I, I'm going I'm to listen to what that guy had to say. I, I, I mean, when somebody raises from the dead, I, I think you want to give him a hearing, right? There's a lot of implications to that. And so we see <coughs> that Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, the historical evidence behind the empty tomb is decisive. However, some skeptical scholars still deny it due to its clear implications, as we just talked about. For instance, Ehrman, that guy that I just quoted, he originally believed in the empty tomb, but later in his studies, he denied it. Nothing about that. His switch in perspective did not come because there was some new evidence but he felt compelled to change his opinion simply to maintain his skeptical view. Understand? He simply had to change the empty tomb, his belief about the empty tomb, so that he could remain an unbeliever. Because if he believed the tomb was empty, as he originally thought, as the evidence originally showed, and of course didn't change, it made some implications to his life that he wasn't ready to receive. The other thing I want you to see is that Jesus' disciples believed he appeared to them. <coughs> now, I'm careful about the wording here. I'm not saying that, he, that Jesus did appear to them. What I'm saying is it's undeniable that Jesus' disciples believed he appeared to them. You know, this is a fact that the disciples had an experience with the risen Jesus. The evidence supporting this is on par with that for Jesus' crucifixion or even greater. How historians are willing to explain those appearances is a different matter, of course, how they want to interpret them. 
while skeptics won't acknowledge a real resurrection or a true bodily appearance of the Savior, they concede the fact that his disciples and skeptics, such as Paul, who was a persecutor, and James, Jesus' half-brother, believed that he appeared to them after his death. As New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson states, something happened in the lives of real women and men, something that caused them to perceive their lives in a new and radically altered fashion. If we grant that something happened, however, then we must face the still harder question, what was it that happened? What could be profound enough and powerful enough to change timid followers into bold and prophetic leaders? What power could transform a fanatic persecutor like Paul into a fervent apostle? So the reality is something had to happen, folks. Let's say we can't prove what it was, but something did. All four Gospels testified to the disciples having physical encounters with the risen Savior. They saw him, they heard him, they even ate with him. They touched his wounds. Numerous other passages in Acts and other books of the New Testament also testify to Jesus' appearances. One of the most striking is this creed that we just read a piece of before uh, in 1 Corinthians. Look what Paul says in the entire thing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul describes several of the appearance accounts right there. And we learn from the book of Galatians and the book of Acts that he received this information directly from Peter and other eyewitnesses. He mentioned the disciples, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and 500 other people who were still alive. He also described how Jesus later appeared to him. You know, Paul originally persecuted the church. But after Jesus appeared to him, he became one of the greatest proponents of Christianity and wrote more than half of the New Testament. For these reasons, even skeptical scholars have recognized that the disciples really believed that Jesus appeared to them. They won't say he did appear to them, but they have to admit that the disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them. The last point I want you to make today to, make today to you is this. The resurrection was proclaimed early. Folks, these are, the things, these are the things right here that you need to be talking to your skeptical friends about. It's a fact of history that the resurrection of Christ was proclaimed very early. Christianity started in the place where it was least likely to succeed, where it would have been easiest to disprove. In Jerusalem, three days after Jesus' death. Think about this. What if I wrote a book called The Great Kansas City Earthquake of 2015? And then I asked people to buy it and to purchase it. I want you to read about the great uh, earthquake in Kansas City that took place in 2015. It wouldn't, nobody would buy it. Nobody would believe it. They'd say, you've lost your mind. Why? Because you're here. You know it didn't take place. If, if, if these men who were proclaiming the resurrection early on 
were saying it in front of people that knew for a fact Jesus was still in the grave, it would have died out in the first century. They would have said, you guys have lost your minds. Get out of here. Even though leading scholars admit that the resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed early, skeptics often attempt to obscure or even deny the fact. Obviously because, again, of the implications. Rather than engage in historical debate, works of popular fiction like the Da Vinci Code make claims that Christianity came to prominence because of Constantine in about A.D. 325 or so. Folks, that's ridiculous. Such claims completely deny the historical facts. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are all mentioned in the 1 Corinthians 15 creed that we just read. And that information came to Paul within five years of the events. Therefore, the disciples must have been proclaiming it right from the beginning. The resurrection is also central to the Gospels and to nearly all of the preaching recorded in the book of Acts. The reality is that the preaching of the resurrection turned the world upside down from the very beginning. Listen, if the disciples would have preached Jesus was a good man, he did good things, we should do good things, nobody would have cared. But they were preaching that he rose from the dead. It's often argued that the gospel and book of Acts are not historically reliable. However, by all reasonable historical standards, they are some of the most reliable documents from that time period. Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He begins his writing in the book of Luke by describing his work as follows. So this is what he's attempting to do. Look what it says in Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke based his writings on eyewitnesses who were close disciples of Jesus from the very beginning. He also had access to other writings, such as the Gospel of Mark. He was a companion of Paul who had direct access to Peter and the other apostles. In addition, even minor details of his writings have been verified by numerous archaeological discoveries and by comparisons with the other Gospels and Paul's writings. After examining the evidence, even historians who were originally skeptical of Luke became convinced that he is one of the most trustworthy historians of his time. Listen, there are many other facts, many other parts of history that we could mention that point to the credibility of the Christian story. One of the most prominent is the conversion of James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had been a skeptic and was transformed into a believer after seeing the resurrected Jesus. As you might imagine, the evidence would have to be pretty strong to convince you that your brother was the savior of the world. Now think about that. I know some of you have got brothers. Uh, how much evidence would it take for you to believe that he's really the savior of the world? Listen, yeah, you're like, whoa, wow. Okay, listen, James was a skeptic. He grew up with Jesus. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, he's the teacher's pet. Oh, yeah, he's mom's favorite. Oh, yeah, all these. But, but the savior, well, come on, Jesus. You got a little big ego there, Jesus. I mean, I can just picture them growing up together. But something happened to James after the so-called resurrection of Christ. 
And James became a church leader, a, a fervent Christian and a church leader in the first century. Folks, <laughs> really, I mean, there's only really one explanation. The conversion of Paul, combined with other mentioned facts of history, cannot be reasonably explained by anything other than that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, that is the most logical explanation. All other explanations simply fall short. For instance, the first attempt to dismiss the resurrection was made by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They claimed that the disciples stole the body. However, after Jesus was arrested, his disciples either fled for their lives or outright denied him. I mean, they were, they were running for the bushes, man. They didn't want anything to do with this. What could have possibly caused them all to conspire to make up such an unbelievable story and then be willing to suffer persecution and even death for their deception. This rationalization also doesn't account for the conversion of James or Paul, who were originally skeptics. Listen, folks, you can find men in history that have died for a lie, but they thought it was true. What you're talking about here is, is men conspiring a story and then all of them staying true to that story to death, even though they all knew it was a lie. I think through that for a minute. Think through that. Count the resurrection of Jesus? Yes. Okay, well, I know it's really not true. I think it's time to fess up now. No, I think he really rose from the dead. I'll take it. Uh, I know it's not true. What am I going to do? What am I, I mean, think about this. This doesn't make any sense, folks. You might find one crazy person that would die for what they knew was a lie, but 10? When you look at the original 12 uh, disciples, uh, Judas hung himself, John dies of old age on the island of Patmos, the other ten die a martyr's death for their faith and their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Those men were convinced. I mean, there's no possibility of a conspiracy. Those men were convinced with their lives that they witnessed the resurrected Jesus. The claim that the disciples had mass hallucinations is completely unfounded. How could all the disciples have had the same hallucination at the same time with such vivid details? What would have caused the body to vanish from the tomb? Nothing even remotely similar has ever happened in history. Folks, these speculations raise more questions than they give answers. Another explanation which is occasionally put forward is that Jesus didn't actually die. He simply fell unconscious on the cross. It's called the swoon theory. After he was taken down, he eventually revived and then visited the disciples. He later left and died someplace else of old age. Now, the absurdity of this scenario is obvious even to skeptics. First, the Roman soldiers would have made sure Jesus was dead. Folks, these were pros. These, this is not a, it's not a hobby. It's not a part-time job. These guys made their living executing people. If someone survived a crucifixion, the soldiers would have been executed in their place. They made sure he was dead. Next, Jesus would have been within an inch of death... So his disciples would have had to immediately seek medical attention for him just to keep him alive. They couldn't possibly have mistaken him for the resurrected Lord with a glorified body, nor could they, uh, they couldn't possibly uh, account for the conversion of Paul or of James. Again, folks, even the most ardent skeptics have rejected this theory. In contrast, the actual resurrection of Jesus perfectly explains all the facts. You see, when you pile up all the facts and you look at all the theories, you go, nope, not that one. That's goofy. Nope, that's absurd. Nope, that can't happen. Nope, that can't happen. All you're left with is 
Jesus must have raised from the dead. That's the most logical theory. In light of the overwhelming evidence, it's more than reasonable to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, the implications of this, as we talked about, are obviously profound. Jesus' identity as the Savior of the world is thus proven beyond a shadow of a doubt or a reasonable doubt. His words, therefore, have absolute authority over our lives. In addition, we can be confident that God would have ensured his teaching and ministry by accurately recording in the scriptures uh, for future generations what, what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Finally, folks, we have a true hope that we too will raise from the dead because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we grasp this evidence, we can trust that our experience of Jesus today is not imaginary. It's not some ignorant jump-off-the-cliff faith. I need something to, uh, to support me in difficult times, so I'll pick Jesus, and I'll just jump off this cliff. That's not what Christianity is. The res resurrection is not a religious belief based on personal opinion or ignorant faith. It is based on historical facts and an informed, intelligent faith. Because of this, we can choose to give our lives to Christ with, without the concern that we're giving away our ability to think or reason. Folks, we don't have to say, I'm going to give up my ability to be a thinker. I'm going to give up my ability to be logical and rational, and I'll trust in Jesus. It's just the opposite. Because I am rational. Uh, because I do look at the evidence. Because I am a thinker. Because I am logical. I can't come to any other conclusion but that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he did that, then everything else he says and did was true. I trust it. I trust it. Folks, if you're here today and you're thinking about some of your skeptical friends, I want you to think about these things. I want you to, uh, to look into this a little bit more. I want you to educate yourself. There's a lot of good books out. Uh, the books by the guy you saw on the film are, are good. Uh, there's one by uh, a guy named David Limbaugh, who's an attorney. Uh, it's called The... Oh... I just read it. Uh, look it up. David Limbaugh. What is it? Jesus on, Jesus on Trial. Yes, he's an attorney. Thank you, Derek. It's called Jesus on Trial. He's an attorney, and he basically takes it as though he was, if he were an attorney for Jesus, uh, uh, how could he defend the resurrection? Uh, a man uh, named Josh McDowell wrote a book. It's a, it's a tough read, folks. It's about that thick. It's really hard to read, but, man, there's a lot of great information. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He started his doctoral thesis to prove uh, that God did not exist. In the process of looking at the evidence, he became uh, a faithful follower of Christ and said, there's just, there's just no, I, I, I just can't come to any other conclusion. So folks, there's a lot of information out there. Look at it, read it, understand it, share it with your skeptical. I want you to know that you don't have to give up your intelligence, your rational thinking, your logic, to trust in Jesus, to put your faith in the true fact that Jesus rose from the dead exactly like he said he, he did and he would to pay for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the truth of history that proves you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Father, we thank you for that payment. We thank you that when we couldn't do anything about our own sinfulness, you sent Jesus to pay for it. Thank you for giving us an opportunity by faith to accept that gift and to put our lives in your hands and to be reconnected with you. 
Father, I pray for uh, those who are here and who are skeptics and those who we are thinking about, our friends who are skeptics. I pray that you'll give us opportunities to speak to them, to talk to them, and help them to understand that Christianity is not a blind and dumb and ignorant faith, but it's a faith based on uh, intelligence and logic and facts. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.